We are continuing our uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, which is Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, this is, I think, our fifth week in it. And uh, today, uh, again, we're going to get into the meat of the sermon. Uh, we kind of started that last week, but today we're really going to see Jesus start to uh, lay down a foundation of His authority. And the message He brought uh, back then, you know, 2,000 years ago, is just as relevant today as it was when He gave it. Uh, in fact, our culture, like things are different, but yet uh, I would venture to guess that since the beginning of time and when Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mountain, our human hearts are the same as they were back then. Uh, if you look at today, like our culture, uh, it's very easy, and I think it's like natural tendency for the human heart to kind of loosen rules on things, uh, to get rules to kind of fit us, not us fit the rule. Uh, and if you missed last week, we talked about pretty much the main verse for the entire Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. Uh, basically, he was here on earth not to kick out the Old Testament, but to kind of, for lack of a better term, bring it into a little bit clearer of a view, and we're going to see that. Uh, because what was happening back in that day, again, wasn't really uh, much different of how we view the law today. Uh, let me give you a quick example of that. I, uh, I'll just confess sin in front of you right now, I often struggle with the suggested speed limit. Uh, in particular, if you're on a freeway and the speed limit is 55, I don't understand why that's the speed limit on the freeway. I just find like a 55 mile per hour speed limit, and if there's police in here, I don't drive a white, you know, truck. Um, I find like 55 mile per hour speed limit prohibits my progress. Uh, and like some dude put that sign up trying to prohibit me from going from A to B in a quick manner. Uh, because speed limits were made like back in the 1960s, okay? I wasn't around back then, but I would venture to guess that cars are a little more advanced now than they were in the 60s. So what have, might have been reasonable and prudent in your 1971 Ford Pinto doesn't really compare much to what might be reasonable and prudent in a brand new Tesla or even my wife's murdered out minivan, okay? Uh, so what ends up happening with most of us is like we bend the rules a little bit uh, to get them to comply with what we think is right. I mean, even if you're an extreme rule follower in this room, you probably at least go 60 on the 303. If not, I'll wave to you as I pass by you tomorrow. So for this morning and the next four weeks after this, we're going to kind of look and see that's what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, with the original law, the Mosaic law, they would kind of bend it a little bit, or at the very least, they would kind of loosen the law up. Like, oh man, I don't really think it means this, so let's just make it say this. Or, man, that law is really hard to follow, let's boil it down to something that's a little more simplistic or as a lot of the religious leaders did. It's like, yeah, I like that rule that God gave us, but now culture's pointing us in another direction. Let's just kind of mix the law of God with culture. That sounds a little bit like 2023, right? Uh, so what we'll see in this first part of the sermon where Jesus gets into the, the meat and bones of the whole thing is, is Jesus starts to flex his own authority, uh, the authority that Christ had that nobody else had. And he says this, he'll say this every week for the next five weeks. He kind of starts it with this formula. He said, hey, you've heard it said this, and that's fine, but I say it this. And so this morning he's going to talk about what they thought about murder. 
uh, and how murder really is one thing, but it can be boiled down to a thing called anger. And what we'll see is that, again, Jesus doesn't want part of us. He wants the whole thing. Uh, He wants your entire heart, and that's going to force us as Christians now when we apply a text like this to take some very hard steps in our lives. Uh, What we'll see in this text is that direct obedience to the words of Jesus will produce in us a want to reconcile relationships that that is fairly uncommon in this world. It's hard to accomplish, and it's completely countercultural. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21, and while you do that, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we will dive in. Uh, God, I thank you for this morning, just an awesome time of worship. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this series, and God, I pray that we uh, just open up our hearts as we open up your word. Uh, Lord, just a, a command that's not hard to follow, that not to murder anybody, uh, but what it boils down to is that our hearts are wicked and uh, need of assistance and need of salvation. So, God, I pray that as we open your word, Lord, you open our minds, hearts, and ears to what you would have. Uh, let your spirit just work through this room this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So again, that formula, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So back in the day, you've heard it was said this. So this doesn't really, when he says like back in the day you heard this, this one doesn't take a a ton of digging into some like obscure passage in Leviticus to see what Jesus is referencing. Uh, He's talking about the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, the sixth commandment. So Exodus 20 is all the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 13, right after honor your father and mother is the sixth commandment, just something real simple. You shall not murder. Uh, So I try my best to obey the Ten Commandments. Some are easier to obey than others. But of all the commandments, do not murder. I have killed it with this one. No pun intended. Uh, Never murdered anyone in my life, or I probably wouldn't be standing up here. Uh, Just as it is today, if you commit murder, unless you're like a crime boss or you're just awesome at running from the law, uh, you'll be held liable to judgment. That's kind of like a stringent rule here in our country. Uh, So it's simple. Just don't kill anyone. You won't be punished for killing anyone. Uh, That's what the people had heard. Now Jesus is going to be like, no, not so fast. Uh, Let me turn this up a few notches to show you the true intention of why that was originally commanded. In verse 22, Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said of old this, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus kind of in this verse gives us like a threefold series of images, right? First, he says simply, if you're angry with your brother, you'll be held liable to judgment. Well, dang, Jesus, like just if I'm angry with my brother, like I'm held liable to judgment. Uh, If you read the King James, it probably says if you're angry with your brother without cause. Uh, So everyone who's angry with his brother without cause will be liable to judgment. That's actually not a correct translation. That was a translation used to kind of soften up Jesus's commands. This is a very strict requirement. Uh, What Jesus is essentially making clear, and I know that's really hard to hear, is that simple anger is on par with murder. And as you can see, it carries the same uh, result as the Old Testament Mosaic law. Remember, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will what? Be liable to judgment. 
In verse 21, in that case, if you murdered somebody in the Old Testament, you would have to stand before the Mosaic court. That would be the judgment. Now in verse 22, if you're angry with your brother, same words, you're liable to judgment. Uh, That word judgment is the same word in verses 21 and 22, but this time Jesus isn't talking about a court. How do you know that? Uh, no human court could possibly sit there and discern, no matter if it's like the greatest jury ever assembled, uh, no jury could ever sit there and discern the thoughts of the human heart, the human heart's motivations, its intentions. Uh, only God can do that. Uh, so this judgment that Jesus starts off verse 22 with is kind of like, look, be angry with your brother, that's fine, you're going to be held liable to judgment, not with a court with God Himself. And here's where you start to see a little bit of the direction that Jesus is going, that simply being angry has like damaging effects. So number one, you're angry with your brother, you're liable to God's judgment. Number two, whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. Uh, So that word insult has a little something behind it. It's a Greek word, raka. Uh, It's essentially an expression that would say like you're being verbally abusive. Uh, If you were to say raka to somebody, uh, you're basically telling them they're empty-headed. If this were to translate into like an insult today, the the easiest way to say it is if you were to call somebody like a blockhead, which I don't know who uses that word, but uh, that would kind of be the easiest way to translate it. Meaning like if I called you raka, I'm telling you like there's not much going on upstairs. You're not real smart. So to insult someone here in this context meant to like insult their intelligence. Uh, If you do that, Jesus says you're liable to the council. Again, the council here is human rule. Uh, It's a legitimate Jewish governing body called the Sanhedrin. Uh, So if you're familiar with Jewish history of Scripture, uh, the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body of justice for the Jewish people. Uh, These are the same people, if you remember correctly, that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They took Jesus back to their council of 71 people. They charged him formally with blasphemy and then handed him over to the Roman side, which was Pilate, which where he was sentenced to death. So the Sanhedrin had like a huge influence in the culture that day. So to be liable to the council was not a good thing. That would mean there's punishment. Uh, Third part, whoever calls his brother, you fool, is liable to fiery hell. That word fool quite literally means like if you call your brother a moron uh, and kind of like a spiritual moron, not just like a life moron, a spiritual moron. Uh, The Old Testament version of this word was used to describe those who just outrightly denied God's existence, which led to a life of evil. Uh, So rather than our 2023 moron, it can also mean like words like rebel, apostate, outcast, basically those who openly reject God and they're dooming themselves to hell. Uh, What Jesus is saying here is that if you insult your brother, you're attacking his intelligence. If you call him a fool, you're attacking his inner character. It's essentially, when we're verbally abusive like this, it's an attack on both the person's head and the heart. So it's simple. You do this, you're liable to the hell of fire. Uh, That's the word Gehenna, which is a Greek translation of two Jewish words. They talked about like the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, What that valley was was a ravine south of Jerusalem where trash was dumped and lit on fire. That consequently became like a euphemism to the fire of hell, just a place that you didn't want to be. So again, these are pretty serious stipulations just if you're angry with your brother, right? 
And you might be sitting there like, sure, I've never murdered a man. Like, I can say that. I've never murdered anybody. But as your pastor, I could stand up here and say, like, I for sure have thought ill of some people in my life. Uh, It seems like these are pretty damning consequences to thinking like that. Uh, So what Jesus is trying to do and what He's going to do over and over, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in in His teachings in general, is that Jesus is always going to get past the law to get to the heart. Uh, He wants to get to the heart of the matter by saying that the real issue is not the fact that you've committed murder, it's not the act itself, as wrong and devastating as that is, the underlying issue with someone who commits murder is that the heart or inner position or like their moral agent behind why they did that in the first place was wrong. Their heart was wrong. And these aren't like degrees of wrong. It's not like jack up once, you're going to be judged by God. You jack up twice, you're going before the council. Well, you messed up a third time, you're going to hell. Uh, That's not what Jesus is saying. These aren't like degrees of wrong. Jesus is saying all of these are wrong things, but they stem ultimately from a heart. It's the inwardness of the heart, right? And Scripture talks about that all over the place. It's been that way from day one. Again, Jesus isn't expanding the law. He's not making its, its burdens harder to bear. Jesus is there to fulfill it. He's showing that the law in its truest form comes down to the heart, not your actions. So the first thing you might be thinking is, man, how am I supposed to meet this standard? Like, how is that possible? Well, let me just be an encouragement to you this morning. You can't. Like, none of us in this room have met that standard. Again, Jesus isn't after like white-knuckled obedience. Uh, He wants your heart to be transformed, and out of that, your actions start to change. Uh, Second thing, if you're like an argumentative person and you know your Scripture well, you might be sitting there wondering, well, Michael, didn't Jesus get angry? Uh, Don't you remember when He flipped over the tables in the temple because He was angry that day? Uh, Didn't He just tell us to not call anybody a fool, but yet He called the Pharisees fools? Not just fools, He called them blind fools. Yeah, like both those things are true. Jesus did both those things in the Gospels. But before we pin Jesus as a hypocrite, let's first understand the source of His anger. Uh, There's a difference between unrighteous anger versus anger toward things like sin and injustice. Uh, The measuring stick that I think is helpful is when you find yourself caught in anger, and some of us in this room struggle with that more than others, but when you're caught in a moment where you are angry, are you angry because that sin or injustice is happening, or is there anger in your heart simply because you've taken offense to something? Uh, A simple question in the midst of anger is, is my ego what's getting in my way right now? Uh, Oftentimes, our problem is that we burn with this indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, uh, but anything that brings offense or knocks us down the notches we think we need to climb. Uh, Sometimes, or I would say the majority of the time, uh, anger stems from our humanness, not our righteousness. Uh, Let me give you an example of that. If we're personally offended by someone, Uh, I obviously, in this role, I receive criticism sometimes if I feel like I've been offended by someone, uh, something somebody says or does to us, uh, we feel attacked. That's like the automatic thing we feel as humans. Uh, When people confront us with things, we feel attacked, and we automatically think that when that person's confronting us with someone, uh, we know their true intentions. Uh, We give that person no time to explain. Uh, We tie up our shoes. We just run from the criticism as fast as we possibly can. Uh, We rush to anger toward that person. Uh, We're the offended party. We might have been the one that offended, but we're the one who's offended that it's being brought to our attention. 
Although what was said to us in the first place might have had just like a hinge of truth behind it, right? On the very opposite hand is this. You have injustices and sins against image bearers of God happen every day, not only in our country, but all over the world. Yet we just turn a blind eye to it. Uh, We pretend like that stuff's not happening. Don't worry about it because why would we want to be weighed down by other people's burdens? Even worse, you look at injustice and instead of causing righteous anger, grieving it like God would, lamenting it like Scripture would tell you to do, we run to spin the narrative however it might best fit our political or our social leanings. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate with the underlying condition of our human hearts. He's saying your heart, it's guided by something. What is that? If your heart is guarded by, guided by righteousness and seeking the kingdom, then your anger might very well be justified. But if your heart is shaped, developed, and kind of just nourished by fleshly things, the opinions of the world, motivation to take care of yourself first, and I would venture to guess, and this goes for me as well, this isn't me telling you what you're doing wrong, that probably a lot of times your anger is very misplaced and wrong and it's in need of repentance. Here's how I'd define the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Uh, Righteous anger, Martin Luther called it anger of love. Think about that, anger of love, uh, an anger that wishes no one had any evil happen to them, one that is friendly to the person but yet hostile toward the sin. On the contrast is unrighteous anger. According to Jesus, unrighteous anger is anger that has to do with pride, vanity, hatred, malice, and revenge. The root of your anger, when you're caught in the midst of it, or even you're able to look back and see, this triggers anger issues in me. Are those issues of anger righteous or unrighteous? Those are just important questions to ask yourself. So there's the guideline. Now Jesus moves into how this looks. How does our anger kind of flesh itself out in the midst of interpersonal relationships? And the first relationship Jesus talks about is with people in the context of the church. This is where this is going to get fun. Uh, Verse 23, Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. So Jesus in that context is describing someone who's offering their gift at the altar. Uh, That's a metaphor to, in Jesus' day, a Jewish man performing religious duty, a man that would go to the temple, go to the altar, and offer up a sacrifice. We don't do that here anymore, okay? So for us, it's just kind of like an example of us coming on Sunday morning to a worship service like this, Uh, basically what we're doing right now. Uh, You think practically about what you do on a Sunday morning. Uh, Just in this last like 30 minutes, we've sang songs to the Lord. We've worshiped God in song. Uh, Some of you write checks or you put cash in the envelope and put it in the offering box as a way to sacrifice. Uh, You sit and listen right now to the Word of God preached. You sit down, you flip the bulletin over, you take notes. We then sing one more song. Sometimes maybe the sermon even convicts you to the point where the Spirit's speaking to you. You pray about how to handle the text that was preached or you pray that you're confessing your sin to the Lord. All that stuff is just when you come in here and sit down in the hour-long service we have. Uh, Some of you in this room, you serve on a team. Maybe you set up coffee this morning. You move stuff around up there and salt kids to make sure all that's good to go. Maybe you went and prayed before the service started. 
We do all those things. Maybe you greeted people who walked in the door. All those things that we do the minute we set foot here on a Sunday morning are religious duties, whether they feel like it or not. And by that, I mean part of Sunday worship. It's no different than what Jesus is saying here about the person pulling up to the temple and offering a sacrifice. Jesus is like, hey, all that stuff is well and good, but if there's a brother, or I'll just make it gender inclusive, if there's a brother or sister that you know you've done wrong to, you know there's a conflict between the two of you, you know you've offended someone and there's been a wedge that's driven in the middle of your relationship, Jesus is saying, hey, it's better for you to get up and go reconcile with your brother or sister before you do any of this Sunday morning stuff. Quite simply, Jesus is asking, why are you going through the motions of your faith when you have this glaring need of reconciliation some other place of your life? Uh, Your relationship with God isn't to fake it till you make it. He knows your heart the minute you walk in here. He sees all of us. Uh, Hosea 6.6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We could offer up all this stuff, but yet if we don't fully love, who are we? Uh, Legitimately, if you just go home and dwell on this text, you do what it says, there should probably be a lot of you in this room that take steps of reconciliation this week. Uh, I should see a lot of you at Ebb and Flow this week, reconciling relationships. Or if you're real serious and you listen to what this says, but you don't follow it, you don't reconcile with your brother or sister like what Christ is asking you to do. You kind of just drag your heels of obedience, which is how a lot of us obey, kind of half-heartedly. If a lot of you do that, our attendance should drop next week. So I'll just kind of know what's going on in here. What's Jesus saying? Reconciliation is important. Like more important than just ignoring the thing and coming here and just going through these religious motions. So what's the hardest part of this? Uh, The hardest part of stepping forward when you're the one who offended, the hardest part is coming to a place of honesty before both God and ourselves and realizing there's probably been times in your life where you've offended someone. Uh, That takes some searching, doesn't it? Uh, I was walking my neighborhood on Monday And I'll have my phone out and I'm just kind of reading the text out loud. And I'm like explaining it to God, like asking him, like, am I thinking right? Like, what's going on here? And I'm reading this passage out loud and I'm legitimately like walking down 189th Avenue or Lane or whatever that is. I'm trying to think through the text and I just feel God like in that moment start to bring people to my mind. Uh, People in my life that I've had disagreements with. Uh, People who came to this church, helped us plant the church and now they've moved on. I had to pray in that moment, God, with this person or this couple or this individual, was I the one who brought offense? God, if that's me that needs to take a step out in reconciliation, can you show me? Can you show me how I've offended? That right there, especially as a pastor, is a humbling place to be. You know as well as I do, especially if you're the offender in the conflict, reconciliation for you brings freedom. Stagnation in reconciliation just brings continued bondage. Jesus tells you, go reconcile. Swallow your pride. It's you that's in sin. You confess your sin before another brother or sister. If they're in Christ, they should want reconciliation as well. Forgiveness should take place. If not, dust your feet off, but at least make an attempt. Again, do we allow Jesus to have all of us or just kind of the parts of Scripture that are easy to follow? 
Uh, One commentator puts it like this. He says, men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus is going to have none of that. So that's interpersonal conflict within the church. Uh, Next example is interpersonal conflict just in general. Second thing Jesus says, verse 25, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Uh, So in Jesus' day, if you're in debt to someone financially, uh, you could be thrown into what was called debtor's prison, and you wouldn't be allowed out until you paid every last penny of your debt to that person. But here was the catch. When you were in debtor's prison, you couldn't earn money while you were in debtor's prison. Uh, It's kind of like here. If I were to commit a very serious crime, a crime serious enough that I'm put in jail downtown, I can only be released by paying bond. I can't just like work in the jail cell in order to pay my bond. Uh, I'm going to have to call some people I know that have money. I have no ability to pay it. Uh, I better hope that there's a friend or family member that loves me enough to take care of my bail for me. Uh, So Jesus is basically saying, don't let a human relationship get to that point. If you see an issue, don't delay, settle it now. It's kind of like if you've ever dealt with a collections agency. Uh, Just to bring this sermon full circle, I don't know how I pulled this off. I once got pulled over for speeding in the wonderful state of California. I was like 18 years old, okay, so I've matured since then. I was going like 80 and again, like a 55. I couldn't attend traffic school in California since I didn't live there. So I just decided, whatever, I'll just pay the ticket. Guess what 18-year-old Michael did? I never paid the ticket. Uh, They found me here in Arizona, and I just figured, well, I don't live in California. If I just ignore it, it'll go away. A couple months later, I got a letter in the mail from the state of California saying that the ticket which was originally something like $350, was going to be sent to a collections agency, and now I would have to pay upwards of $1,200. I'm like a freshman in college. I don't really have $100 to pay a ticket, let alone $1,200 to pay a ticket. So I'm in that moment kind of caught in between a rock and a hard place. At the bottom of the letter from the state of California, it said, call this number to settle your case. So I called the number. Told the lady on the phone, I don't know what to do. I'm 18. I don't have money to pay this. What do I do? Uh, she said, well, good thing is like the ticket hasn't been sent to collections yet. You can settle it before it gets sent to collections. I said, okay, so what, what exactly does that mean? How much do I owe? She goes, well, you originally owed like $350. We've added some interest on there. And then I'm like, who, who adds interest on a traffic ticket? And then I figured out like half of you are from California because they add interest on things like traffic tickets. <laughs> Um, so she says, you owe like $425 and the, you just pay, it'll be settled. And I'm like, okay, that's a lot better than 1200. I still don't have 425. So what did I do? I called my mom and dad and I said, I need $425. I was speeding in California. What was I doing? I was coming to terms quickly with my accuser. Uh, so this is kind of the opposite of the first example, right? The first example, if you know you've offended a brother, you go to them and offer reconciliation. Here in the second part of this text, Jesus is saying, if a brother or sister comes to you and tells you that you have offended them in some type of way, you simply need to be quick to reconcile. 
He's saying, don't delay. Don't wait until your terms are met. Settle it before it gets more serious. So a real human example for today is that interpersonal conflict in relationships in your life between the time you were born and the time you die will happen. Probably once or twice a year, unless you're super conflicted as a human being, you have conflict. If you're the offended party, you should seek out who you offended. If you are sought out as the offender, you should meet that person in reconciliation. There's no doubt this is difficult. I know by pastoring this church for two years, there's reconciliation in this room that needs to happen. That is not difficult. There's difficulty in reconciliation, but reconciliation is also the place where you find freedom in relationship. My encouragement for all of us this week is go home, pray, think of who you need to, don't just make stuff up. If you've really offended someone, who can you reconcile with and make steps toward reconciliation? And if you're the one who's accused, meet that with understanding. Uh, In closing, obviously the example that Jesus will ultimately show is that he did that for us, right? To draw this to its ultimate extreme, we look at the person and work of Christ. With Christ, it's like he's the one who paid every last penny, right? With Christ, he's the one who took initiative to take on all the judgment in which we deserved. But in his case, he credited all that stuff to his account so that we can be reconciled to his Father. Uh, How amazing is it that Jesus asks us to reconcile with our fellow brothers or sisters, which again is difficult for us to do, but Jesus never asks you to do anything that he won't do himself. Three years later, Jesus walked up to a cross to die so that he could offer all of us in this room reconciliation with him. Think about that for just a second. Jesus Christ, in all of our sin, our wickedness, our hard-hearted or our dark-heartedness, Jesus Christ is the offended party, yet he's the one that sticks out the olive branch to us. And all of us, kind of like it says in the second example, we take the road of life, like the road of court, right? Knowing that one day we're going to die and we're going to stand before a judge, yet we we just delay and we delay and we delay on settling with the one who's offering us full reconciliation with him. I just want to be clear. There's some of you in here this morning. You know about Jesus. You kind of have somewhat figured out. You have a little bit of a relationship with him, but yet there's no fruit in your life. Your heart is not changed. Your life is not changed at all. You're still still doing everything just the way you want to do it. You're not obedient to him. You're simply just bending the rules to make them sound good to you. You know you should settle with Christ, but you know it might cost you something like it did to set me to settle with the state of California. Again, the warning from Christ here is that either, hey, settle now or you're going to end up paying every last penny. I I just don't know why you'd want to do that. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one last song. If you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, Maybe you're the one who's the offender and you want to know how to talk to the person that you've offended. Maybe it's the flip side. You've been hurt by someone and you want to know how to reconcile that. Maybe you're sitting in here knowing you've offended God, but you've never walked in obedience to him and you want to know how to do that. If you need prayer for anything this morning, uh, during the next song, uh, we would love to pray with you over the, by the prayer sign. If you don't want to walk from here to there, do it on your way out. It doesn't matter. Uh, reconcile things now. Uh, Jesus is very clear. Don't delay. Let me pray. 
Father, I thank you for uh, just difficult commands that you ask us to do, but God, you do it because you love us. Um, Lord, you ask us to reconcile with our brothers and sisters because it's there uh, that bondage is released and freedom is found. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that we are mature in you, God, knowing that uh, in the midst of difficult conversations, God, your spirit is present. Uh, Lord, that your spirit guides our words. It guides the way people hear. Uh, So, Father, I pray if there's reconciliation that needs to take take place in this room, uh, God, that we can really step up and just be the type of Christian that you expect us to be. Uh, God, if there's hurt and there's brokenness, uh, Father, I pray that you stand in the midst, God, that you would convict us of our sin and allow us to take the the proper steps in order to restore things. Uh, God, I pray for anybody in this room that doesn't know you. Uh, God, the the man or woman in here that that hasn't reconciled things with you, uh, they haven't settled anything with you. Uh, God, I just ask that your spirit is present and moves this morning. Uh, God, that we can see that you're just offering us eternal life. You're offering us complete forgiveness of sins. Uh, God, you do that in the here and now with no strings attached. Uh, So God, I just pray that you become a real presence in lives here this morning. Uh, God, that we can push and push and push to just follow you. Uh, God, that you can be the king of who we are. And Lord, just guide us to fall deeper with you, God. Just have a deeper love with you. And sometimes, God, that means doing difficult things. So just stir us up to be the people we need to be. It's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen.